Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association. The voice of real estate. This week on Rewind, your week in review. An election conspiracy theorist has filed paperwork to run for governor. We'll discuss how this shakes up the Republican primary. Plus, top Democrats and Republicans can't see eye to eye on what to do with nearly $4 billion in projected revenue coming to the state. And Governor Evers is scheduled to deliver his State of the State address next week. We break down what themes you can expect to hear. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for February 11th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. J.R., let's kick off this week's show with another shakeup in the GOP primary race for governor. Mm -hmm. On Thursday, we discovered that State Representative Timothy Rantham filed paperwork to run for governor. Now, Rantham has been making headlines recently for uh, basically being punished by Assembly Speaker Ross, Speaker Robin Voss, for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election, which you and I both know is legally impossible at this point. Uh, and, and he had a campaign website up uh, briefly on Wednesday before it was taken down. And that's when a lot of people started screenshotting it. I know you and I probably got sent the link. I uh, just want to cover a little bit of kind of what his mm -hmm. campaign is going to be about. On the website, it said, I am a servant of, by, and for the people who believes in truth, transparency, transparency, and integrity. I will call for an independent, full, forensic, physical cyber audit for the November 2022 election, beginning with my race, regardless of its outcome. So clearly his platform is going to be, how can we rescind the 10 electoral votes in Wisconsin for Trump, which we know is not possible. And also just his whole campaign is the centerpiece of trying to overturn the election. Yeah, so let's start. Uh, when I come on the show and talk about stuff, I'm reflecting the conversation I have with insiders, operatives, you know, campaign people, that kind of stuff. Those folks aren't big fans of Tim Rantham, all right? So remember that when I talk about this stuff. They don't see he as much of a chance to win the GOP nomination. Definitely not in their minds of governor's office. So the question becomes, how does he impact the field? The initial conventionalism has been that he hurts Kevin Nicholson the most, right? Because Nicholson wants to run an outsider campaign. He's going to suck up the anti-establishment vote and use that to overcome Rebecca Clayfish, who has been out there beating the trail for basically since she and Walker lost in 2018, is a favor of the party establishment. And there's some truth to that, right? I mean, there is definitely an issue where there's a discontent between a big some of the base, what they see as Madison Republicans, you know, people they think are more interested in their own political futures than about getting to the quote-unquote truth. Another thought I got this week, though, is that this also is a threat to Clayfish. That's because Rantham is going to feed that part of the Republican base that is convinced of the big steal, that the election was stolen, that it should be overturned, that Trump should be back in office, that people should be in prison. What's Clayfish's answer going to be about that question that Rantham is going to keep bringing up about the 2020 election? If it's not sufficient to make that part of the base happy and she wins the nomination, then what happens, right? Are those folks going to stay home in November and say, well, she's not pure enough on this issue. I'm not happy. And this gets to a, a bigger issue for Republicans of there is a problem with a portion of the base. And I've talked about it before. I don't know if it's 5%, 10, 20, 40. I don't know how big it is. I don't go to Carney Party Lincoln GOP dinners, right? I try to see my kids on the weekends <laughs> as it is. It's hard enough with the right. job that I have. But there is a grassroots issue for folks who go to these events because we've seen a half dozen resolutions condemning Robin Voss, calling him to resign. 
We've seen Robin Voss go to the hot meeting, the open, honest, transparent government meeting in Racine and getting grilled about things. Like there is a, a disconnect between these folks who are the professional political class and that part of the base. So what's going to happen? And oh, by the way, um, while people dismiss Tim Rantham, he's going to have Mike Lindell at this thing on Saturday. He's got Mike Lindell's support. Um, he's been it, praised by President Donald Trump, but not an official endorsement yet. If he has a website up and running that is well put together and has a donation button on it, if he does, pulls this off tomorrow with the announcement, goes on Newsmax and OANN a couple of times, he could raise a half million bucks easy. Over the, just the weekend. And you bring up Trump. so The Trump factor. What will Trump do, right? I've asked people about this all week long. Um, Donald Trump loves personal loyalty above everything else. Now, I don't pretend to know Donald Trump personally or like have talked to him or anything. Perception is he loves personal loyalty to him, not to the party, but to him. Rantham is pushing his pet issue. So on the one hand, you'd think he'd be in prime position for endorsement from Donald Trump, right? There are also Republicans who in Wisconsin have Trump's ear. They don't like Tim Rantham. They are going to tell Donald Trump, you don't want to back this guy. He is not going to win. And what also does Trump hate? Being attached to a quote-unquote loser, being a loser. So if they can convince Trump this guy can't win, that might keep him on the sideline. And with all the candidates in the race now, they're all vying for President Trump's attention because of how big of the base it will track to them. And I think what's also important is whoever does win the nomination is unifying the party afterwards. You have a lot of different candidates. Great point. it's, it's, It's huge. I mean, whoever wins that, they are going to have to try to get those Rantham supporters and maybe, you know, maybe it goes for Nicholson, Clayfish, we don't know. Uh, Clayfish, like you mentioned, has been on the campaign trail the longest, but it's, it's unifying the party after their state convention in May. Who's on the, who's on the debate stage? Right. So you have Jonathan Wickman, this businessman who's you know, not really caught much traction. He's pushing stuff about the 2020 election. Rantham has a bigger platform than Wickman has and more attention because he talks to Donald Trump mm-hmm. or has talked to him. Nicholson is ripping the party establishment. I mean, it, the debates have the chance to be a little bit of a carnival-like atmosphere of like people going at each other. Oh, by the way, if you're Nicholson, can you now keep your head down a little bit, focus on positive bio and have Rantham or somebody else ripping Clayfish is not pure enough on this. It, there are lots of possibilities right now about what's going to happen. Yeah, all right. And uh, speaking of elections, we're just going to quickly recap the Senate Elections Committee that met on uh, Monday of this week where Republican lawmakers overall just defended their package of bills uh, aimed at boosting election integrity and overall just want to clarify some guidance uh, that was questioned by Republicans during the pandemic, like issue uh, guidance that was issued by WEC. Uh, so let's a little um, <clears throat> before we get into uh, kind of the bills that we recapped last week, uh, election advocacy groups also testified in a sense that they weren't against all these proposals. Mm-hmm. You know, they support clarifying election laws, but the other proposals uh, they believe will just make it more difficult to vote. So let's just hear a little bit about those arguments. As pointed out in earlier testimony, we weren't prepared for a pandemic. And now with many of our bills, we are trying to be prepared. But with the preparation, there has to be checks and balances. This bill brings transparency, um, statewide fairness and transparency by stating directly in statute what specific information must be included on the absentee ballot certificate. State and zip code is not required, but we do need to know your house number and your street. First, uh, let me preface by saying I don't disagree with everything in all these bills. And I certainly agree that we need clear rules for our elections. 
but let's make sure when we're setting those rules that those rules are fair. If I'm a witness for the absentee voter and I print my name and I sign my name and I put Madison, Wisconsin down as my residence, but I neglect to put my street down, should the voter I'm witnessing for be disqualified because of that omission? The bill says yes, and that seems ridiculous to me. Even requiring a witness seems like a stretch to me since the voter already is swearing about his or her identity. But now to make the witness have to fill out everything just right or the voter's ballot is disqualified just uh, adds another way to toss a perfectly good ballot into the wastebasket. So there's about 10 uh, election bills, and one of them was a const- to change the constitutional amendment to ban uh, government officials from accepting the Zucker bucks, as mm-hmm. they call it, or down the line, any private uh, election grants. So I guess the question is, is Republicans are clearly going to rush these through and try to get them on the floor, pass them, send it to the governor's Evers desk before they try to wrap up their session by March. Yeah, and the problem is um, you can make an argument for these things are good, that even Democrats might like some of the cleanup language about state statutes. But in every bill that Republicans are talking about, there is a poison pill is not necessarily the right word, but there is a provision in there that Evers is going to hate and will veto it because of that. So mm-hmm. they're missing an opportunity to tweak some things ahead of the election this fall. But what they're banking on is it'll be a new governor in January 23 and that they'll work with him or her to do what they want to do with election laws. Uh, one of those bills uh, specifically deals with special voting deputies, which kind of leads into our next topic, mm-hmm. which broke this morning uh, regarding uh, SVDs, is the Racing County District Attorney declined to issue criminal charges against five of the election commissioners out of six. Uh, this stems from the Racing County Sheriff's investigation. Uh, in October, he released his findings, and then November asked the DA to, to charge mm-hmm. officials. And this is over them alleging that them, uh, I guess, election clerks sending absentee ballots instead of special voting deputies to nursing homes led to voter fraud. This has been a big issue that we, we've had no idea of how the DA would rule. Mm-hmm. But in her decision, we have the letter right here that she has declined to issue charges because she does not have jurisdiction. None of the WEC members reside in Racine County. It would be unfair for me to accept that these healthcare professionals would better understand election laws in Wisconsin than the Wisconsin Elections Commission. So both of you and I uh, talked to the chair of WEC and Jacobs this morning who said, overall, I, you know, she said, I knew all along that they didn't have jurisdiction. This is a political stunt. Kind of glad to see it's over with. So remember, special voting deputies, clerks send them to a nursing home twice before they send the absentee ballot. The whole thing is that these SVDs help people in nursing homes vote, right? Help fill the absentee ballot applic- or the envelope, just do things the right way, oversee it. They're also, if requested, a- accompanied by observers. During the pandemic, nursing homes weren't letting people in because they were afraid that COVID would spread unchecked without a vaccine in their facilities and kill people. So the commission made a, initially voted 6-0 to suspend the requirement of going twice before you send the absentee ballot. So because they said it saved time, essentially. They're worried that if you took the, made the two visits to each facility, you would delay the absentee ballot being sent. The resume will fill it out and send it back in time for the election. That's why it was done. Their argument was you are preserving the right to vote for the, for the residents versus this requirement of the SVDs. We talked about this back in November. Mm-hmm. I asked a half dozen attorneys, are they going to face real charges? They said no. Dean Knutson, GOP appointed the commission. I asked him about his thoughts on this. He said it is DA 101 that if you don't have the person in your county, you can't prosecute them. This should never have taken two months. The other point was, by not filing charges in any of it, they're also shielding the sheriff 
from misconduct charges for pursuing a case without any probable cause. He's not mincing words about what's going on here. Um, other thing is she's not prosecuting people who, according to her letter, at least two people were referred for, for charges and she's not going to prosecute them. Knutson was critical of that, saying, look, there, was, there were issues here. It was an outlier in his mind, but not pursuing those charges is wrong. If there's something going on, you should go after it. You know, she's using her discretion not to charge these folks. The question is, what's next? Well, her letter does not recommend referring these cases to the counties of residence where these um, commissioners live, so there's that. It doesn't refer to it to the Attorney General Josh Call, so there's that. So this seems to be the end of it, which is where we thought we were going to end up in the anyway two months ago. Right. And uh, it is uh, one important note that special voting deputies for the first time in two years will be allowed mm -hmm. into nursing homes. They're actually already been deployed, uh, according to a spokesman from the Wisconsin Elections Commission, to help residents vote. So even though it was controversial then, these special voting deputies are going back in there. They have masks. They are screened. And, and hopefully can, can do what their duty is, is, yeah. to, is to help people uh, cast a ballot. Uh, let's move on to uh, another committee that took place this week around uh, correctional facilities, specifically uh, what happened in 2018 with the closure of Lincoln Hills, the bill, I guess I should say, in 2018 when Scott Walker signed Act 185 directing the state to close Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake by July of 2020. Well, it's 2022 that still hasn't happened. So there's a Republican bill uh, that was heard in the Judiciary uh, Committee this week that would fund a new $42 million juvenile prison in Milwaukee County. Now, this would mark the next step to closing the troubled youth prisons, but some Democrats, especially from the Milwaukee area, uh, Senator Lena Taylor that I talked to, she says she supports the move to close the youth prisons, but she doesn't want to see the plans uh, be reconstructed at the Falmers O'Cheney Center, which is one of the few work release mm -hmm. uh, programs in Wisconsin. So you uh, have talked to a few people, too, that, yeah, it looks like a good bipartisan bill, but it's likely dead in the water. Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, the process to close Lincoln Hills Copper Lake was flawed from the very beginning. Uh, go back to 2018. It was a rush job, quite frankly, a CYA move to sign the bill to close the prison because there were so many problems with what was going on there. And it was not properly funded from the start. Remember, it's supposed to be a two-pronged system, right? Type 1 facilities at the state level for the most serious offenders and county room facilities for others to kind of get everybody out of Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake. They said, oh, we'll come back and fix the funding later on. We're four years later, and the funding hasn't been fixed. There have been bits and pieces. They approved work at Mendota, which is a facility that has mental health um, services as well to house more female offenders. That's going forward. There was, I believe, the uh, Building Commission approved some design money for the replacement Type 1 facility. But now we're at this bill, and quite frankly, I've been told for months this is not going to move because Republicans don't want to give Evers a win on this issue. They're going to wait until they have a different administration, they're hoping for January 23, to move forward on this. They want to kind of control the process. In the meantime, as far as I know, Racine County is the only one to even begin the process of opening a county-run facility. Uh, that's still in progress. And we have this funding bill out there that I don't think is going anywhere, but there are problems up at Lincoln Hills. It, the problems are getting better, right? Like Things are improving with the court-monitor reports. ACL but reports. Yes. But there are fewer kids up there. The fewer kids you have, the more it costs counties to house them at this facility. That is becoming a burden for the kids who are up there. It's, it is still an issue. And, oh, by the way, we know now from numerous studies that if you take people who are in trouble away from their support system, right. they are going to struggle. We're putting kids who are largely from southeastern Wisconsin in the middle of north-central Wisconsin. 
debt is away from their families, their friends, their, what they know, that's not helping. Um, so the longer you delay this, the longer it's going to cause an issue. And that was the whole messaging when they passed this in 2018. is like, let's open smaller facilities so it's only a short drive away, especially mm -hmm. for those that live in Milwaukee County, to see their family, see their friends, and, and to overall try to better their lives once they do get released. Um, I forgot to toss it to this video of during the debate during the committee, so let's just hear from Senator Wangard and Senator Felskowski on this issue. This bill provides the additional $41,791,000 for full construction of the new facility. Approving this bill will allow DOC to finally build a new Type 1 juvenile correction facility in Milwaukee County and move Wisconsin one step closer towards closing Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake. Research shows that the way that we were trying to rehabilitate the inmates at Lincoln Hills was not the best for the inmates. It wasn't working. So we've gone to different, and they want to do the pod facilities because these youth are better off when they're closer to their families, they get more wraparound services. It's past the time for this facility to close. This is not, this should not be a political debate. I got both houses in session, say this state. All right, and now we have a spring primary on mm -hmm. February 15th that we're going to do a quick little preview of. It's one of the biggest uh, races that we're going to focus on is going to be the Milwaukee mayoral election. I think the big headline is, I think uh, it's a battle between six. Yep. Uh, of course, uh, interim mayor right now is Cavalier Johnson. He's had numerous events, I think almost every single day, <laughs> um, getting his public plan out there. So it's, in a sense, I think we can suggest that it's probably going to come down who are the next two out of six that will meet him uh, in the November election. So, yeah, eventually Johnson's going to get through. Um, he's been in the news a lot. He raised the most money. He's up on TV. He's got an outside group supporting him. Those are all good things in a low turnout primary. The question is, who has the support from enough folks to turn out on a, a election day when there's almost nothing else in the ballot in Milwaukee? There are one or two, I saw, county supervisor primaries, but right. maybe some school board, nothing else going on. So, uh, Bob Donovan, he's the conservative of the race. Even though it's a nonpartisan race, um, he's the conservative. He could get through the primary. He can't win a general election. I mean, we saw it already running as Tom Barrett. Um, did not do very well. So you have Marina Dimitrovich running a good campaign, people tell me. Uh, got kind of progressive east side support, uh, working families, those kinds of folks. Can she put together enough people to come out on uh, Tuesday and get her through? Ernell Lucas. Um, he actually raised the most money in the pre-primary period. He used to do security stuff for Bud Selig and Major League Baseball, kind of cashed in on some of that support. So that was interesting. But is he missing his opportunity to be the law and order Democrat in this field and run that lane? Because he's not really stressing his law enforcement credentials, the stuff that I've seen. Then you have Lena Taylor. Uh, Lena has a dedicated band of supporters running for state senate, but she's run for mayor before, not done well. She's run for county executive before. I don't know if she can put a coalition together in April to win, but she might be able to get to the primary on Tuesday. And quite frankly, of those four plus Chevy, Cavalier, Cavalier has the easiest time to put together a winning coalition in April. The other four, it's harder to see how they put one together because you start doing like mix and match, right? Like let's talk about Marina. She is the most progressive candidate in the field. Well, there are Republicans who live in Milwaukee. They're gonna go, well, if it's Marina or Cavalier, Cavalier is somebody I can work with more, right? Uh, the business community, so he's more uh, in their minds, reasonable. That would be a challenge for her. Can she find that coalition in April? Donovan, again, he fared badly against Barrett. There, aren't there, there are Republicans in Milwaukee, but not that right. many. Right. Not enough to win a, an April election. So it, th those are the challenges they face. How do you find that coalition against a Cavalier-Johnson um, coalition come April? 
And on that same day, February 15th, uh, the governor is going to deliver his State of the State address at 7 p.m. So I wanted to kind of just preview a little bit about what we expect him to talk about. Um, I think uh, the top one is he's going to tout some tax cuts, uh, using his state surplus uh, to issue $150 refund checks to every resident in Wisconsin, invest in K-12 education and child care. And using that state surplus was that package that he introduced a few weeks ago um, to, to use uh, the projected surplus, uh, which is uh, going to be about $3.8 billion coming to the state uh, in 2023. And I'm sure he's going to be touting his accomplishments, mm-hmm. right? Uh, every every time he's having a press conference, it's usually to tout the federal pandemic aid that he's helping small businesses, uh, using some on broadband expansion. And of course, he's probably going to say, look, I signed the Republican state <laughs> budget. We can work together, right? There's always those same themes that we hear in these right. speeches. So, J.R., what, what, uh, other than that, I guess, what do you, what do you expect to hear this is on long, Tuesday? The even-numbered year, State of the State, has always been the official kickoff of the re-election campaign for a governor in the election year. Um, now, the reality is we, he kicked off his campaign a long time ago, right? He announced in last summer. But this is kind of what we usually go, okay, now stuff gets real because the session is going to end uh, by March 10th-ish. It's all going to be about campaigns from here on out. This is a statewide platform to talk to people about what he's done and put his message out there. So, yeah, it's going to be heavy on re-election themes. That's what I expect. Um, also, Washington is talking about mass mandates. I mean, that has Very been a true. big thing going around the country right now where you've seen governors in other states, Democratic governors, it's time to move away from some of this stuff. What is Evers? Now, we don't have a statewide mass mandate in Wisconsin. We have Milwaukee and Dane County have them in place. School districts have them in place. What's his, is he going to talk about that? Because there's a shifting sentiment that this is time to move away from this stuff. Will he address it in a state of state address? And we'll see. Um, of course, there's usually a Republican response mm-hmm. afterwards. So I did reach out to the Republican Party of Wisconsin, who just gave us kind of a tidbit of what their response might look like. Uh, Anna Kelly, the communications director for RPW, said on Tuesday, Wisconsinites are unlikely to hear any meaningful solutions to our crumbling education system, rising crime, and historical challenges for small businesses. He's done nothing to address the most important issues facing Wisconsin and remains res- asleep at the wheel while families pay the price for his absent leadership. You know, crime, uh, small businesses, education, we know these are the, mm-hmm. the three things that Republicans are running on uh, as well uh, for their re- uh, not re-election, excuse me, for, for the November yeah. election as well. So, Absolutely. Uh, let's uh, go on to our last topic, which I kind of just teased a little bit about the governor wants probably to tout what he wants to do with the $3.8 billion projected surplus. This week, uh, the Wisconsin Counties Association had their annual event. It was in person, which mm-hmm. was nice to see. And basically, uh, every year they have legislative leaders kind of discuss uh, kind of the state of the state, I guess. Uh, and they got into an argument, which we've known has been an argument, is what to do with all of this money. Republicans have said they want to issue tax cuts, but don't have plans to do that until next year when they start crafting the state budget. Democrats are backing the Governor Governor Evers' plan, which would do the refund checks, invest education, child care, etc. Um, also, there was a new report I wanted to point out, too, from the Wisconsin Policy Forum that also said using a portion of this state surplus could be a great investment for local governments who are really struggling right now. You know, they're they're having to pay for more and working with less resources coming in. So back to, though, the, the surplus. I want to get back to that because it's going to lead into hearing from Senate Minority Leader Janet Buley and Senate Majority Leader Lemahue kind of arguing about saying, hey, we should do something with this now on the Democrat side. Meanwhile, Lemahue is going to say, well, we just don't know if the money's going to be there yet. So maybe let's just be cautious. Let's take a listen. 
I would love to see more uh, resources to uh, local governments in some way. Counties and towns and cities, villages are suffering so much, and I know that you take your responsibilities very seriously, and getting mandated services done and accomplished is crucial. A projected surplus at this point, when we don't know if it's going to materialize, if our revenues are going to start going down, um, a year and a half out, I think, makes absolutely no sense. And uh, also just doing, you know, sending out checks, one-time tax relief. If, if we're going to do tax relief, we should do permanent tax relief, not just a one-time injection into, into people's wallets. So let's provide permanent tax relief. Uh, we also have to point out, too, there is a lot of money in the rainy day fund mm -hmm. that Republicans has been sitting on. But, you know, they would just want to keep this, not give Governor Evers any victories. So they're just going to hold on to this cash and see what happens in November if Wisconsin elects a Republican. Uh, they want to do another tax cut next year. Mm -hmm. um, question is how big, what it will look like, and if they have a Republican governor to sign it. All right. Let's get to stock picks. All right, JR, this week you have rising Dan Kelly. All right. So... Coming down the We're rabbit so hole. So excited! Come Look at you. Let's go down the rabbit hole, Emily. So, Ellen Brostrom, uh, Milwaukee County Circuit Court judge, also the daughter of Pat Rogensack, State Supreme Court Justice, uh, told supporters that she's not going to run for Supreme Court. Um, Bay said she can't raise the money, isn't the support she would need to run a campaign. This is good for Kelly, and the reason is uh, Daniel Kelly obviously was appointed to the Supreme Court by Scott Walker in 2016, lost in 2020 to Joe Karofsky by 10.5 percentage points, wants to run again. Uh, in 2023, there are some conservatives who are like, eh, not sure about that because he lost one time, right? And not a close rate, it was 10 points. Now, it's partly driven by turnout in the presidential primary, which helped Karofsky quite a bit because the Dem nomination was basically sewn up for Joe Biden, but not quite done, right? Well, some conservatives want an alternative to Kelly. Brostrom is no longer an alternative. Now, part of her problem was um, she at one time said, well, I'm liberal on some issues, conservative on others. After the Brian Hagedorn experience, which I heard a new phrase this week, Hagger burned. Uh, oh. <laughs> I've not heard that one before. <laughs> but conservatives want somebody they can trust that they know is there on issues because they don't want any possibility. Want way, yeah. yeah. Well, if you're a circuit court judge, how do you prove that? You're mostly overseeing trials, right? I mean, like you can set bail, which sends a message about things, but you're not weighing in on constitutional issues most of the time as a circuit court judge. She doesn't have that credential to assure people of I'm the one you want. So Kelly now while he may have some flaws, does not have a challenger from the right. The question is, who's going to run the liberal side? Um, there are several judges' names being kicked around so far. Nobody's actually got into the race or announced. I mean, Rogan said, I can't really announce. She's not going to seek re-election next year when Kelly said, I'm going to run, or I'm thinking about running. But she turns 82 this summer and confirmed about a month ago that, yeah, I'm not going to seek another 10-year term. But So it's good for Kelly. The field for him on the conservative side is clearing. Mm -hmm. All right, and mixed this week, Ann Sayers. Uh, she did get her committee vote this week for eventual confirmation vote on the Senate floor, but she's we know not she's not going up to the floor because yeah. this is, you know, election year, and we know a lot of these appointees or cabinet secretaries are just not getting confirmed. So I talked to Devin Lemmyhew a month ago. He said, we're not doing any more based on the governor's cabinet picks or points picks for UB Board of Regents, the Tech College Board, um, DNR Board, that kind of stuff. So when Sayers' nomination got a committee vote, I was like, oh, this is interesting. What's going on? And it was 9-0, uh, which was a sign that Republicans, too, think she's doing a good job. I was told Committee Chair Joan Baldwin wanted to move the nomination at least that far because of that support, but there's no sign of leadership's going to go to the floor. Um, now, remember, back in September, Republicans confirmed four of Evers' cabinet picks. Um, Randy Romansky over at DATCAP 
uh, Missy Hughes over at Weedick. Um, Krim at Dispis, thank you, and uh, Thompson at Transportation. Anne became interim secretary in December of 2020 after Sarah Meany left. Had never been confirmed as, trans as tourism secretary. Didn't get the appointment as the secretary secretary until September. In theory, if Evers had elevated her secretary like a year ago, maybe she could have got caught up in that, that kind of rush of appointments because people like what she's doing, right? Other two unconfirmed are Pekacek at Workforce Development, uh, and Timberlake at Health Services. There's no way those guys are going anywhere because Republicans do not like how DB is operating, right. and the COVID stuff is tied to health services. And you just there's not going to move a pick for that agency with what how it's related to what Eva's done on COVID. So, you know, I guess Ann's getting a good job in kind of uh, from these Republicans, but also not going to get the full confirmation. Which doesn't I mean they still get paid. Right. They still they do their job. They still get to do their job. They still confirmed. get the kind of title, but not not the confirmation. Yeah. And then following this week is, uh, I guess, more backlash around mm -hmm. some comments uh, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson made about an Oshkosh truck company. So Ron Johnson um, has said a lot of stuff about COVID. A lot of stuff is misleading they said about COVID. But COVID is so political, it gets lost in the wash sometimes. I don't know if people are really tuned in, although the Marquette Law School poll from October, I think it was, found that like less than 400 voters think he's telling them accurate stuff about COVID, right? So there's an issue there. The Oshkosh truck thing is different. Now, I kind of get what, what Johnson was trying to say, that the federal government should be saying where jobs should be based, right? Like it's not, a company should make that decision. One, the contract, it's its call. But that's a Wisconsin-based company, and it's jobs that could be going in Wisconsin. He basically said, we have enough jobs in Wisconsin, which we have a lot of open jobs. We do. Right. But, but these are good-paying Oshkosh truck jobs right in his backyard. In his district, yeah. And the question becomes, if you're not going to fight for jobs in your state, why are you there? What are you fighting for besides being this kind of like contrarian on things? Like, what are you trying to do? Um, now, what I don't know is like, at what point does this really start to like bite Johnson in the butt? Because he said lots of stuff controversial over the last couple of years. This one, again, cuts a little deeper. But one thing I saw was there's a column by a business guy this week basically saying Johnson had gone too far, um, saying that he supported Johnson before, but now is not there. What I'm wondering is, is that a lonely voice out there, or is that the tip of the spear of Johnson losing support among traditional Republicans because he's gone too Trumpy? Remember, Donald Trump didn't lose Wisconsin because of you know turnout urban areas. He lost it because of like suburban Republicans said, "I can't do this anymore." Do that, right? The congressional Republican candidates did really well in 2020. If he had just matched, if Trump had just matched their vote totals, he would have won Wisconsin again. He didn't. So is this guy again? Is he just? The canary in the coal mine, right. or is he just one? But you know, for Johnson, it may not matter. It, the uh, the environment this fall could be so good for Republicans; it doesn't matter. He's run in a great year in 2010, which turned out to be a good year in 16, right? Because turnout was down among d Democrats, but new voters came out for Donald Trump. It helped Ron Johnson while he still had those suburban voters. But is he risking losing those folks? His numbers aren't great. Marquette poll; they'll get better. The money will come. Uh, people will tune in and know more about who he is. Remember who he is. But is he, is this one kind of cuts a little harder than the other, other it does, things? And does it stick too, right? Yeah. We know people are kind of probably tired or getting tired of his COVID comments or the election stuff, but does this one really hurt, right? Yeah. We just don't know. All right. Well, that will do it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Take care. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. 
bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.